0: This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. I remember very clearly waking up early when I was about thirteen. I don't remember where my sister was, but I was alone in the room. This would have been maybe five thirty in the morning, and the sun was just starting to rise. My cat was howling, and I mean howling. He was normally really sweet and relaxed, but he was freaking out, running between me and the door and me yelling his head off. Finally, he just bolted out the door and ran downstairs. I shrugged it off and rolled over, trying to go back to sleep. I could feel something wasn't right. I turned back toward the door to see what was up. Standing on the other side of the room was a white female figure. I couldn't see her face.
1: for the betterment of you.
0: But I could make out her long hair and body. We just sat there, staring at each other for what felt like an eternity. Finally, I heard people starting to move around downstairs, and the figure disappeared. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you are new here, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Android so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I am constantly posting new episodes exclusively for patrons, and you can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Coming up in this free episode… Nuns that meow like cats, people who can't stop laughing maniacally, an entire high school begins twitching, even the Salem witch trials. Just a few of the eight cases of mass hysteria I'll be sharing with you later. January 7, 1950, events began in what became one of the strangest disappearances of the middle 20th century, the vanishing of a West Point cadet. Visitors to Cock Abbey have reported a strange atmosphere of sadness and foreboding, and many have reported being scared by the sounds of a tin whistle. We've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle. But there are strange anomalies worldwide, and one in Russia is known as the M-Triangle. As far back as the 19th century, a hairy monster has been frightening guests of an Irish castle. When living in a home built in the 1800s, it might be expected to have something paranormal living with you. Plus. I'll share two original stories of fiction submitted directly by Weird Darkness fans. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. Cock Abbey is a run-down stately home that is now owned by the National Trust in the UK. It is kept in the state that it was in when handed over to the NT, and so visitors are treated to a glimpse of its former glories. Its peeling walls and overgrown gardens paint a picture of the decadence of a former period and the harsh realities of changing family fortunes. The stately home was built on the site of a former religious house, Cock Priory, But it lasted only a few years and was eventually dissolved by Henry VIII. The estate was eventually purchased by Henry Harper in 1622 for £5,350 and it stayed in the Harper family until the National Trust began caring for it in 1985. The son of Sir Harry Harper, 6th Baronet and Lady Frances Greville of Warwick Castle, was known as the Isolated Baronet. Sir Henry Harper became the seventh baronet in 1789. He withdrew from society, a characteristic which continued in the family for the next 200 years, and this rather eccentric and solitary nature has shaped the house you can still see today. Sir Cervancy Harper Crewe, tenth baronet, was little seen outside the grounds of Cock Abbey. Much like his ancestors, he preferred isolation. He was kind to his workers but lacked in manners when it came to his own family. His passion was for collecting stuffed animals and when he died in 1924 there were several hundred specimens in the house. By the time the NT took over the house, many of its rooms had been abandoned for decades and they have been left that way. Visitors to the Abbey have reported a strange atmosphere of sadness and foreboding, and many have reported being scared by the sounds of a tin whistle. One account posted to Reddit describes the whistle sound and the creepy underground tunnels as follows. Was in with my mom, who can be quite skeptical, and there's a part that they have let run down on purpose. It was quiet, so no one was there in that part of the building, and me and my mom heard the sound of someone whistling on a tin whistle type thing. There are some old kitchens near the end of the building and I was terrified and felt really weird to the point where I clutched onto my mom. There are tunnels there that are very creepy and we found out later monks were buried in the courtyard next to them. I was very creeped out and walked very fast through them and looked back to see a black figure stood in a pool of light, which my mom saw too. Very creepy." According to the UK Haunted Locations database, there are many ghosts reported in this old house, including a hooded monk in the stable block, an elderly man in a long flowing coat, and footsteps in the old brew house and poltergeist-like activity, including chairs being put on tables and people being slapped and pinched in the chop house. A figure has also been observed in the lobby. Footsteps an old lady sitting and watching visitors, possibly Nancy Pierce, who was kept on well after her duties with the house's children had ceased, and a lady in period dress who was mistaken for an actress. A very creepy place and well worth a visit." There are many anomalous zones in various parts of Russia. Also called the M-Triangle, Perm Anomalous Zone is one of the most intriguing places and home to several accounts of unusual and mysterious phenomena. Most people who visited the M-Triangle often feel the presence of some energy force that can be either negative or positive. Nearly everyone who visits such places experiences something odd, enigmatic, some presence of unknown forces. Though it is assumed that strange and unexplained events have taken place in the region for a long time, Perm Anomalous Zone was officially discovered in the 1980s. The zone is located about 10 kilometers from the Molyobka village, which was founded in 1787. This remote corner is located at the confluence of the Silva and Molikoba rivers. The area of the anomalous zone is roughly 70 square kilometers and is essentially comprised of dense forest. One of the first observations of an unusual phenomena was reported in the summer of 1980 by Pavel Sergiev, a local resident who witnessed how an object fell into a pond. It must have been a rather large and heavy object because the waves rose more than 10 meters above the waterline. In October 1984, Emil Bokharin, one of Russia's leading ufologists who passed away in 2009, observed a purple ball that suddenly appeared out of nowhere from the forest. Soon the M-triangle became a place of great interest for researchers, journalists and tourists interested in strange and unexplained mysteries. People who visited the Perm Anomalous Zone have reported observing rare phosphorescence, mysterious dark figures, flying spheres, plant mutations, unusual phenomenon of freezing rain, sound barrages, coronal anomalies, colored lightning, and a few have heard ancient choir singing. There are no reports of disappearing people or objects, but watches do stop and bright glowing and colored lightning often appear in the sky. Researchers think the unusual lights are caused by the underground fractures, where strong energy is coming up from the depths of the Earth. Some scientists have suggested magnetic fields change the movement of the Silva River, which then forms the mysterious triangle from all sides. Russian researcher Nikolay Sabatin, who has organized many tours to the Perm anomalous zone, thinks many of the region's anomalies are caused by electromagnetic energy that comes up from the lower layers of the planet. For example, take the effect of a frozen sound, as we call it. It happens as follows. You sit near a fire and hear a tractor coming. You wait for it to come into view, but it never does, and the sound subsides. Some phenomena cause inexplicable fear. When you walk along a path and suddenly get overwhelmed as if the infrasound or some other thing affected your brain. You can come to the same place on purpose the next day, and nothing happens. There must be something there, either of the electromagnetic nature or some invisible objects indeed," Sabatin said. People who visit the M Triangle have experienced headaches, high temperatures, and states of temper. Electromagnetic energy can also cause people to feel ill under certain conditions. For example, scientist James Beale has suggested that variations in the Earth's magnetic field can trigger responses in the nervous systems of certain people who are particularly sensitive to such anomalies because of quirks in their body chemistry. Both animals and people can react to electromagnetic energy. Perhaps the strong energy present in the region can also explain why this place was sacred to the Mansi people, whose ancestors populated the areas west of the Ural Mountains. It is estimated there are dozens of anomalous zones in Russia. Another very intriguing place is Arkham, that remains a scientific enigma and anomalous zone where strange things take place. This place is unique and surrounded by mystery. Arkheim is one of 20 prehistoric sites covering an area that expands over 400 by 200 kilometers on the Eurasian Steppes east of the southern part of Ural Mountains. It's commonly agreed that Arkaim, a circular fortified settlement roughly 150 meters in diameter and related artifacts, was built somewhere between 4000 and 5000 years ago. Other sites in the vicinity of Arkaim dated to 2300 to 1600 BC were discovered by aerial survey that definitely confirmed a great importance of this region of Ural. Thousands of years old legends and myths from the region of Ural Mountains and ancient Siberia say that Arkaim is not an ordinary place where people live. On the contrary, 4,000 years ago, the local inhabitants suddenly abandoned Arkaim, and the empty settlement burned. It was once located in the southern part of what today is the Chelyabinsk region. Arkham's circular fortification aligned with stars as even more complex structure than the famous Stonehenge. But Arkham is in fact located in a remote place of Russia and is not so well known as the British Stone Rings. It's long been known that Stonehenge has and was built with astronomical observation in mind and possibly may still allow for observations of 10 astronomical phenomena using 22 elements whereas some archaeoastronomers claim that Arkheim allows for observations of 18 phenomena using 30 elements. This essentially means that certain events in the sky could be observed and tracked by using the site in particular ways and from different positions, and that Arkheim offered more observable events than Stonehenge. According to Russian archaeologist K.K. Bystrushkin, Stonehenge offers an observational accuracy of 10 arc minutes to a degree, whereas Arkham offers accuracy of one arc minute. This precision was only recorded in the Almagest of Ancient Greece. Astronomers who carefully investigated the location of Arkham's remains found no traces of any earlier constructions in that area. The accuracy and complexity of Arkham's structure is a scientific enigma. However, the strangeness of this anomalous zone does not end here. One of the greatest puzzles regarding Arkane is the fire which destroyed the prehistoric settlement. This prehistoric incident is very difficult to explain. No reliable explanation was proposed regarding the absence of any human remains in the burnt place. The only possible suggestion could be that the residents already left the settlement before the fire broke out. A number of professionals, such as historians, archeologists, and ethnographers demonstrated their true interest in the anomalous area of Arkane. The place has been visited by thousands of astrologists, prophets, contactees, psychics, and members of religious cults. These people did not contribute much to the understanding of the archive's phenomena, but they did witness strange lights, not that of satellites moving in the sky. Mysterious light flashes, appearances of fog clusters, and unexplained abrupt changes at atmospheric temperature. People often start to feel not well in the area, reporting unexplainable psychic tension and disturbances in blood pressure, body temperature, and changes in heart-beating rhythm. The fact is that Arkane's distant past is an unknown page of history, and apparently there are many secrets hidden in the prehistoric remains of Arkane, considered by many as Holy Arkane. This mysterious story of a hairy monster that persecuted the inhabitants of an ancient castle in Ireland became known in the 1930s. According to two ghost investigators, this story took place in the second half of the 19th century and was described in detail by Maude Foulkes in her book True Ghost Stories, published in 1937. As stated in Folks' book, Sir Reginald Spann, a priest of the Anglican Church in Arizona, was ready to vouch for the truthfulness of this story, as it happened to his friends who were vacationing in the picturesque castle in the south of Ireland shot for the summer. It all began with the fact that a certain Mrs. A. was sitting late in the evening in one of the rooms of the castle the name of the castle is not indicated anywhere in anticipation of the return of her husband. Suddenly, she heard a knock at the door outside, and then there were loud, strange steps. Someone or something was walking there outside the walls of her room in the corridor or on the street near the entrance with the staircase. The woman took a lighted candle and left the room. To her horror, she saw on the stairs a dark figure which ascended upstairs to her room. Probably the creature felt that they noticed it and it raised its head and looked at the woman at point-blank range, forcing the woman to freeze from fear. This creature possessed a strong and hairy body, like a monkey, but its head was like a man, although also overgrown with long hair. For a few moments, it looked at the woman with a rather malicious expression and then suddenly disappeared as if it had dissolved into the air. But the story did not end there. A few days later, the mysterious hairy monster saw the husband of that woman. It was inside the castle. At first, he heard a terrible laugh echoing through the old halls of the building and then he saw in the shadows in the niche a large hairy monkey with a man's head, just as his wife had told him before. Apparently, the man was able to better see the mysterious creature since he described it in more detail later. He said the creature's hair, or coat, was a reddish-brown color and meeting with him looked like a nightmare from a dream. After seeing it, the man ran to his bedroom in horror. For the next few days, everything was pretty quiet, but then the creature, or ghost, returned. Mrs. A at that time was in the living room and decorated the table with flowers. Suddenly she felt two pairs of hands lie on her shoulders. Mrs. A thought it was her daughter and turned, and that moment saw a creature towering above her at least six feet tall. It made a strange, ghastly sound, and Mrs. A screamed in horror at once. When her friend ran to her cry, the creature disappeared suddenly and incomprehensibly, as in the previous time. After this incident, all guests quickly collected their belongings and returned to the U.S. The explorer of the anomalous phenomena, Ronan Colan, in connection with the study of this history, notes that there is an old Irish word, gruagach, which can be translated as a cannibal, magician, or giant, but most often it is used in relation to a large, hairy creature. And mention of this creature can be found even in the Norwegian text of the 13th century about Ireland. There it is mentioned that in Ireland people once grabbed a wild, hairy man whose mane grew along his back. In another ancient Irish text, wild people named Gelt are described and how they appear. These creatures are men who lose their minds from fear in battles between clans. They run in fear into the woods and live there like wild beasts, avoiding communication with people. According to stories from the people, after twenty years in such forests on the bodies of these creatures, feathers grow and they protect them from frost. These creatures can run around the trees as quickly as monkeys or squirrels. Gelt needed for life only water to drink, water plants to eat, and bedding for sleep. Most of them did not care. Since there are no actual contemporary meetings with the Gelt in Ireland, the researcher Colon is wondering whether it's possible that the specter of such a creature was frightened at the guest's castle, and not by itself. I grew up on a small farm in western New York. It was an old farmhouse, built in the 1850s. Weird stuff happened frequently. You'd set an object down, and it would disappear only to reappear later in the same place. Being a farm, we had a lot of animals, particularly cats and dogs. The cats would often watch something we couldn't see moving around the room and sometimes they would hiss at nothing. My little sister and I had a lot of frightening experiences over the years. Something often came into our room at night. I once heard it slowly climb up the stairs, then a figure looked around my door but quickly retreated when it saw me looking at it. My sister said she often felt something settle at the foot of her bed like an adult was sitting there. Sometimes she could see the silhouette of an old man. We often wondered if it was our grandfather since she didn't remember feeling frightened by the presence. I remember very clearly waking up early when I was about 13 I don't remember where my sister was, but I was alone in the room. This would have been maybe 5.30 in the morning, and the sun was just starting to rise. My cat was howling, and I mean howling. He was normally really sweet and relaxed, but he was freaking out, running between me and the door and meowing his head off. Finally, he just bolted out the door and ran downstairs. I shrugged it off and rolled over trying to get back to sleep. I could feel something wasn't right and turned back to the door to see what was up. Standing on the other side of the room was a white female figure. I couldn't see her face, but I could make out her long hair and body. We just sat there, staring at each other for what felt like an eternity. Finally, I heard people starting to move around downstairs and the figure disappeared. We also used to have a German Shepherd named Jasmine. She was a ferocious guard dog and if she heard or smelled anything out of place, she would bark to be let out. One day I was upstairs in my bedroom and I heard Jasmine start barking. I went downstairs to let her out expecting her to be waiting by the door, only she wasn't. She was standing in the living room, barking and growling at thin air. I asked her if she wanted to go outside, but she totally ignored me and kept barking at whatever it was she saw. When she finally stopped, she looked at me and was completely perplexed. If I was ever home alone, in the middle of the day, I'd always hear voices from downstairs, usually male voices. I'd go down thinking maybe someone had stopped by, but I wouldn't see anyone and the voices would stop. One night, I woke up, I'm a very light sleeper, and turned over so I was looking toward my sister's side of the room. I saw a little girl standing there and it definitely wasn't my sister. For one thing, I could see my sister sleeping soundly in her bed. This girl had thick, wild hair that went down to her waist and she was standing there, arms hanging out to the side like she was ready to pounce. I quickly turned the light on but couldn't see anyone or anything that would have cast such a distinct shadow. The next morning, I woke up to my sister freaking out because all of her horse pictures had been torn off the walls. In addition to that, several years after this particular incident, the people who previously owned our house dropped by to talk to my mom. They asked her if anyone had seen the little girl who haunted the house. Another time, I had this really vivid nightmare about zombies. I was surrounded and they started pulling at me, only I woke up and I could still see them. They were in my room, crawling over my bed, grabbing at me. I turned on my light and blinked frantically until they disappeared. I breathed a sigh of relief, then looked up. Not four feet away, a black mass was hovering. It shot into my closet when I looked directly at it. A few years after that, I was home alone on a very dark winter night. I was sitting on the couch reading a book. My sister's cat, Stormy, was laying on top of the recliner, drifting off to sleep. Then I saw a grayish figure walk through the living room and into my parents' room. I might've thought I imagined it, except Stormy had watched it too and her eyes were glued to the spot where it disappeared. When I was 16 or 17, my parents decided to remodel their bedroom. When they started breaking down the wall in their closet, they found a Bible. We think it was written in German, and the weird thing was it looked singed around the edges. We knew there'd been a fire in the home many years ago. My parents wanted to keep the Bible out, but I insisted they replace it. They listened, but I think the damage was done. My sister and I didn't get much sleep until they finished the remodel. We kept waking up scared and both of us were having nightmares. Sometimes we'd hear noises during the night like whispering or footsteps. Then we started waking up with injuries we couldn't account for. Finger-shaped bruises appeared on our wrists. I had a long burn running down my face and my sister had three deep scratches on her chest. Once the construction stopped, things calmed down for the most part, but we would still hear footsteps when we were alone in the house, and I often heard my name being called. I have since moved out of the house. My sister still lives there, but refuses to talk about the things we experienced. January 7, 1950. Events began in what became one of the strangest disappearances of the middle 20th century, the vanishing of a West Point cadet named Richard Colvin Cox. As far as anyone could tell, he vanished without a trace while still on the grounds of the legendary military academy, creating a mystery that still remains unsolved. To this day, he is the only West Point cadet that vanished and was never found, dead or alive. West Point, America's most esteemed military academy, is located on the banks of the Hudson River, about 50 miles from New York City. It is an impressive Gothic-like fortress with slit windows, turrets, and stone walls that give the impression of it being an impregnable place. The academy has a rich history and, in addition, has provided America's armies with its top commanders, as well as a number of notable personalities, including Federal and Confederate Civil War officers like Grant, Lee, Hood, Jackson, Longstreet, Sheridan, Sherman, and Stewart, George Armstrong Custer, John J. Pershing, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, and many others. Still, it must be pointed out that many of the young men and women who managed to get into West Point Point. Have doubts about their decision during the first year. During that time, first year students are known as plebes, the lowest of the low. Hazing by upperclassmen is rough and old fashioned. So are the scholastic and psychological approaches of the Academy. The purpose of West Point has always been to mold young people into field commander potential, and the idea behind hazing has been an effort to blot out cadets' past personality and turn them into West Pointers. Every once in a while, a cadet finds himself or herself unable to bear the pressure, and occasionally a plebe or even an upperclassman goes absent without leave from West Point. However, the tradition and honor code of the academy usually brings them back again, ashamed and penitent. Oddly enough, West Point usually rigid and severe has always maintained sympathy for such cases, and while a punishment is always meted out, cadets are almost always welcome back into the fold. In 1950, one cadet who successfully weathered the stress of his plebe year at West Point was a young man named Richard Colvin Cox. He was 21 years old, with blue eyes, a fair complexion, and light brown, close-cropped hair. Instructors and fellow classmen later recalled that Cox was morose during his first year, but not unusually so. The moods had not affected his studies, and he rated in the upper third of his class. All in all, he seemed to be shaping up into top officer material. Cox was an exceptional student and a promising young man. He grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, with his widowed mother, two brothers, and four sisters he had been an excellent student and the star of his high school swimming team. He'd also been the president of his senior class and a member of the National Honor Society, which required good character as well as good grades. Although regarded as shy, Cox began dating Betty Timmons in high school. By the time that he reached West Point, the two were engaged. Cox spent his 1949 Christmas leave in Mansfield, where he and Betty had been inseparable they talked constantly of their future together. Richard, or Dick, had always dreamed of being an army officer. He was in high school during most of World War II and he enlisted in the army as soon as he graduated in June 1945. After training in Kentucky, he was assigned to the 27th Constabulary Division, a military police unit in Germany which had recently surrendered. His unit, located in Coburg, Germany, was assigned to patrol the newly created border between East and West Germany. He took to Army life and spent his free time sightseeing and playing basketball on the Army team. He was an outstanding soldier and rose quickly to the rank of four-stripe sergeant. Cox began thinking of West Point and took the competitive exam for the Point. While he was waiting for the results, he received word from his mother. She had applied for a political appointment for him to West Point and had succeeded on getting it for him. This irritated Cox. He had wanted to get into the academy on his own merits, but as his friends told him, at least he'd be able to attend. Cox accepted the appointment and arrived at West Point in September 1948. Nothing especially remarkable occurred to Richard Cox during his first year at West Point. Already familiar with army life, he found the regiment at the academy not too difficult. He suffered through his share of hazing, just like the other plebes, and went through a period of depression that was noted by his classmates and instructors, but never seemed to have any thoughts of quitting. In September 1949, as his second year began, Cox was established in room 1943 of the North Barracks. He shared the space with cadets Joseph Urschel and Deanne Welch and seemed happy to be back at West Point. When he returned home to Mansfield for Christmas, he took with him two suits of civilian clothing, as cadets were permitted to do. Free of his uniform for a time, he slipped easily into civilian life. He and Betty Timmons at one point talked of eloping, apparently considering it rather seriously. But to do so meant expulsion from West Point, since cadets weren't allowed to marry and perhaps could even end his military career. Cox, or perhaps Betty, thought about this dire penalty, and the subject of elopement was dropped. Cox returned to West Point on January 2, 1950, and the first week back from vacation passed uneventfully. Then, on January 7, the first odd and still unexplained event occurred in the case. Peter C. Haynes was the cadet in charge of quarters at North Barracks on that Saturday afternoon. At around 4.45 p.m., the B Company telephone rang. Haynes answered it, and a rough man's voice demanded to know if a fellow named Dick Cox was in the company. Haynes replied that yes, Dick Cox was in B Company, and the man said, well, look, when he comes in, tell him to come down to the hotel. Tell him George called. We knew each other in Germany. Tell him I'm a friend who wants to buy him dinner. When questioned later, Haynes couldn't remember much about the call, only that the man said his name was George. He was unsure if it was the man's first name or last name. There was, however, no question about the hotel. It can only be the Hotel Thayer, which was about a half mile from the West Point grounds. By the Academy's rules, this was the only place other than the mess hall where Cox or any other cadet could eat a meal. Even so, any cadet who wanted to eat at the hotel needed a special dinner-privilege pass to leave the grounds. Several minutes after Haynes took the call, Richard Cox walked past him. Informed of the call, Cox looked bewildered. He had no idea who George might be and couldn't remember meeting anyone by that name in Germany. Finally, Cox shrugged off the message and went upstairs to his room. About 45 minutes after the mysterious telephone call, a man, who was about six feet tall, hatless and wearing a tightly belted trench coat, walked into Grant Hall and asked to see Richard Cox. Visitors who come to West Point to see a cadet must come through the hall, a large lounge that was decorated with an impressive array of paintings and divisional insignia. Visitors were to give the name of the cadet that they wished to see, and the cadet was informed. If he was free, he reported to greet the visitor at Grant Hall. Cadet officer of the guard Mauro moresca was on duty that evening, and he remembered the man as having blonde hair and a lightly tanned face, which was unusual in New York in January. However, moresca did not ask the man his name, he merely relayed word to Cox that he had a visitor. A few minutes later, Dick entered Grant Hall. He hung his long gray dress overcoat on a rack, as cadets were required to do, and then presented himself to moresca the officer of the guard called out Cox's name and the blonde visitor stepped forward. Cox recognized the man and they shook hands. Maresca later remembered that they seemed glad to see each other and after a few minutes they walked over to the coat rack. While Cox was putting on his coat, the visitor kidded him about how he looked in his uniform. Before leaving Grant Hall, Cox signed out on a dinner pass or DP which would allow him to dine at the Hotel Thayer but apparently he never went there. His DP was signed at 5.30 p.m., and by 7.00 p.m. Cox was back in North Barracks. This would have hardly have given him the time to reach the Thayer, let alone eat one of the leisurely meals that the hotel's dining room was known for and return to the barracks. Nor did anyone recall seeing Cox at the Thayer that night. The hotel had two small dining rooms with about 30 tables in each one. No one, Not a staff member or another cadet saw Cox in the restaurant that night. There was one thing off about Cox when he returned to the barracks that night. He was slightly drunk. This was a foolish and dangerous state for a cadet to be seen in at West Point. He got away with it, though, and when he reached his room, he changed out of his uniform and into a sweatshirt and running pants. Then he picked up a book and began to study. When his two roommates came in at about 10.30 p.m., he was asleep with a textbook in his hands. The curious events of January 7th did not end with the arrival of Cox's roommates. A few moments after they walked in the door, the bugle sounded for lights out, startling Cox out of his sleep. He leapt hysterically to his feet, not seeming to realize where he was or who was in the room with him. Incoherent, he ran out of the room before his surprised roommates could restrain him. In the hallway, he leaned over the stairwell and shouted words that sounded like, Is Alice down there? Alice? His roommates had never heard him mention a girl with that name. Later, a suggestion was made that Cox actually yelled, Alice kaput, which translates to, All is over. This might have made more sense, given the events that were still to come. Cadet Urschel led Cox back into his room 1943, asking him who Alice was. Cox shook his head, unable to explain his bizarre behavior. He collapsed onto his bed, not turning down the covers or undressing, and was immediately asleep again. The next morning, Cox didn't speak about anyone named Alice, but he was anxious to tell his friends about the previous night's visitor. He explained that the man had been in his outfit in Germany and before that was an army ranger. They had not been close friends. Cox considered the man to be quite morbid and he had a few drinks the night before refusing to let Dick out of the car until he had some too. He told his friends that the man spun terrible stories of his exploits when he was a ranger, talking of cutting and emasculating Germans and that he'd lived with a girl in Germany, gotten her pregnant and killed her. Welch and Urschel were as bothered by the stories as Cox seemed to be. He finished the account by expressing his dislike for George. He was always boasting, bragging all the time, he said, and he hoped that he would not return to visit again. Unfortunately, George came back again around noon the next day, and once again, Cox went to meet him. He told Urschel and Welch that he would be back in about two hours all the while complaining bitterly about the time that George was wasting and speaking again of his dislike for the man. He further characterized him as sadistic, strange, and highly strung. He walked away muttering that he hoped to never see the man again. To Urshel and Welch, Cox didn't seem to fear his visitor. The mysterious George rated no higher than a nuisance. They attributed the fact that Cox went to meet him two times to midwinter boredom. After enjoying himself during the holidays, Cox was finding it difficult to adjust to the rigid life of the point again. Even an unwanted visitor like George offered a distraction from day to day life. In the week that followed, Cox continued to make disparaging comments about George. Herschel and Welch could never remember if they asked Cox about Alice again, but they did recall that, back in December, about two weeks before going home to Ohio, Dick had written a letter to a young woman whom he had met in Germany. Without asking him directly, his roommates assumed this girl's name was Alice. On Saturday, January 14th, a week after George's first appearance, Cox and Welch went together to watch the army basketball team play against Rutgers. After the game, they walked back to North Barracks. Near the east entrance, Cox told Welch that he wanted to look at his grades, which each Saturday were posted near the company barracks. The two cadets parted ways. It was later discovered that just moments later, Cox met with a man who seemed to be waiting for him near the east entrance. It was assumed that this was George but according to cadet John Simotis, who witnessed Cox walk up to him, the man was short, had dark hair, and was lighter than George. He also wore a trench coat, but it hung casually open. Cox returned to room 1943 about 20 minutes after Welch and again informed his roommates that he was going to have dinner with a friend. They assumed he meant George, although he never stated that. He said that he would be back around 9.30 p.m., Cox left the room at 5.45 and he took no money with him. In his room, he left behind $60 in cash and $45 in checks. Over his dress-gray uniform, he put on his regulation long gray overcoat, which made him a conspicuous figure and one that would have been remembered if he was seen on the street. Unfortunately, though, no one remembered him and it was in this recognizable uniform that Cox vanished. He did not go to the Hotel Thayer, for no one who dined there that night remembered seeing him. He did not return to the barracks that night, as required by regulations, and his bed was empty at 1 a.m. during the final check. The next morning, Cadets Urschel and Welch nervously appeared before the Provost Marshal to report their roommate missing. Cadet Richard Cox became permanently absent without leave. What happened? Richard Cox that night is unknown. If he left West Point by automobile, then he would have had to have been in the trunk because cars were inspected when they exited through the gates. A young man in a West Point uniform would have attracted attention and Cox had to have been in uniform since his two civilian suits were still hanging in his closet. If Cox had been sneaking out, he could have climbed in a car trunk or, worse yet, if George had overpowered him and killed him he could have hidden Dick's body there. But in light of Cox's physical fitness and dislike for George, this scenario seemed unlikely. Officials were taking the disappearance seriously, especially in light of George's strange visits and Cox's reported hostility towards the man. It was concluded that Cox had met either with an accident or with foul play on West Point grounds. A search was made of the academy by a special services regiment stationed at West Point, but no trace of the missing cadet came to light on that Sunday. In Cox's room, though, an odd discovery was made. On his calendar, the day was circled in red, with the notation, C. Kelly, written in Cox's neat hand beside the circle. At first, this was assumed to have been in reference to George but it turned out to be in reference to James Kelly, a boyhood friend of Dick's from Mansfield and a midshipman at Annapolis, Maryland. Kelly was visiting West Point on February 15th, not January 15th, and Cox had simply made the notation on the wrong calendar month. On Monday, the Army's Criminal Investigation Command was notified about Cox's disappearance, A circular was drawn up with Cox's description and information was provided to the civilian press the following day. There was no word from anyone who might have seen Richard Cox. As days became weeks, the hunt for the cadet continued. The army called in the FBI and local and state police joined in the search, sending out information throughout the country and to Germany. At West Point, there was a room-by-room search of all buildings And then the search spread out into the surrounding area. Searchers formed in long lines five or six feet apart and moved slowly up and down the hillsides. When the search of the area yielded no clues, both Delafield Pond and the Lusk Reservoir were drained and dragged. The draining of Delafield Pond alone took two weeks. In Ohio, the Cox family and Betty Timmons were interrogated by the FBI. They had no idea where Richard might be and had not seen him since Christmas, when his mother said he was anxious to return to West Point. Then another odd thing happened. The letter that Cox had written to the young woman in Germany arrived back at the post, and across its face were the German words for address unknown. Investigators who believed this letter had been written to a girl named Alice got a surprise, Cox had written to a girl named Rosemary Vogel. The contents of the letter were innocent. Cox said that he'd been looking through some of his photos of Germany and noticed one of Rosemary and decided to write. Cox's quarters were ransacked in a search for the picture of Rosemary Vogel, but nothing was found. It eventually turned up in Mansfield. Cox had apparently taken the photo, along with the rest of his pictures from Germany, home with him for Christmas. Although the letter offered no clues of anything other than a young man feeling nostalgic for friends in another country, CID investigators in Germany set out to find Rosemary Vogel. The result was curious. The girl's mother reported that her daughter had married an American sergeant and was living in a small town in New York. FBI men rushed there, only to find a happily married young woman who barely remembered Richard Cox. Back in Germany, the CID investigators questioned every man that Cox had bunked or soldiered with. His daily movements were recreated, and yet not a single clue of a double life or any suspicious behavior ever turned up. The FBI search in the United States was just as fruitless. The hunt for the mysterious George was just as determined as the search for Cox himself. Military records in Germany were combed for a man who had transferred from the Rangers to the 27th Constabulary, a man who was blonde, a braggart, and perhaps the lover of a girl named Alice. At the Army's Dead File Center in St. Louis, personnel records of the Rangers and the 27th Constabulary were scrutinized for a man with George as a first or last name and who fit the description of the man who came to West Point. Only one such man was ever found – and he had an airtight alibi for the nights of January 7th and January 14th. At first, the Cox disappearance got little coverage in the newspapers. The actor Robert Montgomery, who also worked as a news commentator, mentioned the story on his show. Soon, reports of Cox began flooding in from around the country. He'd been seen in hotels, motels, swimming pools, and nightclubs. The gas station attendant claimed that he'd seen Cox in the company of a dazzling blonde showgirl. Richard's brother called the report, "...absolutely preposterous." Every night, for two months, the name Richard Colvin Cox was shouted out in the West Point Roll Call. There was only silence in reply. Finally, on March 15, Cox was formally dropped from the cadet roster. Colonel Edwin N. Howell, West Point Provost Marshal, said, I am convinced there was foul play. I am sure that we will not find Cadet Cox alive. When the spring thaw arrived, another intensive search of the countryside began. It turned up something interesting, an unusual Brazilian-made 38 caliber pistol near the West Point firing range. Someone suggested that it was just the sort of exotic weapon that might be used by a ranger. There was no way to tell how long the gun had been there since it was so damaged by the rain and snow of the past winter months. July 25, 1950, was Richard Cox's 22nd birthday. Every other year that he'd been away from home, Cox had telephoned his family at some point during the day. Now, the family gathered by the telephone early in the morning and prayed that he would call. The phone rang several times but it was never Dick. At the end of the day-long vigil, his mother sighed. "'You just go around in circles and come back to the beginning. There's no end to it,' she said." At first, Army headquarters in New York, Colonel Robert J. Murphy said almost the same thing. "'In view of the fact that the man has not turned up and we have no evidence to prove that he is deceased, we must hold to the belief that he is alive.' Apparently, he has no desire to reveal his whereabouts. Therefore, we will search for him until we find a solution of the disappearance. On the day that Cox's class graduated from West Point, the cadet had been missing for two years, four months, and 24 days. Betty Timmons had decided not to wait for her lost love, and she married a man named William Broad. The case faded from news accounts, but it was not forgotten. When Life Magazine printed a photograph of a G.I. in Korea named Cox, hundreds of people wrote in to say that it must be the missing cadet. While it seemed unlikely that the runaway soldier would have used his real name, a CID investigator was sent to question the man. His name was Cox, but he was not the right one, as proven by his fingerprints. The man named George has also never been found there was nothing to indicate who this mysterious man might have been and whether or not he had anything to do with the disappearance of Richard Cox. The case of cadet Richard Cox remains open and unsolved to this day. He is the only West Point cadet who ever disappeared without being found either dead or alive. But what happened to him remains unknown. In medical terms, mass hysteria, also known as collective delusions, is the spontaneous manifestation of a particular behavior by a considerable number of people, either from a phantom illness or an inexplicable event. Often occurring in places where small, tight-knit groups of people are gathered together, mass hysterias generally spread rapidly but are short-lived affairs. With examples found in most societies and hysterical outbreaks that can be traced back throughout history, they remain a baffling reminder of the power of the human mind. From nuns that began to meow like cats to an entire city that couldn't stop dancing, here are the most bizarre cases of mass hysteria ever recorded in history. According to the book Epidemics of the Middle Ages by J.F.C. Hecker, a baffling case of mass hysteria gripped a secluded convent in France. It all began when one nun began to meow like a cat, an animal that is closely associated with the devil in Catholicism. Soon, others in her company began to meow as well. Together, they would sometimes meow for hours at a time. To contain the situation, Soldiers were brought in and tasked with whipping and beating the nuns until they promised to stop. A similar case occurred in Germany during the 15th century, where nuns began to bite one another. When the news traveled, other nunneries in the area started experiencing the same problem. Soon, the biting epidemic had spread as far as Holland and Rome, with no clear explanation as to why this was happening. According to reports from the time, the biting eventually ceased due to the nuns' exhaustion. The bizarre behavior of both cases is generally credited to the period's intense belief in the supernatural, as well as the fact that many of the women had been forced into convents by their families to live a lifestyle that demanded celibacy, poverty, and hard manual labor. It's little wonder nuns found themselves particularly susceptible to episodes of hysteria. In July of 1518, as disease and famine swept through the streets of Strasbourg, France, a strange thing happened. A woman named Trophaea began to dance. After a week of non stop dancing, others had joined her. By August, over 400 people lined the city streets, silently dancing. Doctors were mystified but came to the conclusion that the incessant dancing was caused by a fever and recommended the sufferers continue until the fever burned itself out. The city's governors constructed a stage and brought in a band and professional dancers to dance alongside the inflicted. Soon people began to pass out from heat exhaustion. Some even died. The dancing mania only ended when people were forcibly removed from the streets and taken to shrines to pray to St. John the Baptist or St. Vitus to cure them of the dancing curse. Stranger still, this incident was not the first of its kind. In the 13th century in Germany, the dancing plague, also called St. John's Dance, caused thousands of people to start dancing with uncontrollable emotion. Italy, Holland, and Switzerland also experienced these strange bouts of dancing plagues, with the last known occurrence taking place in the 17th century. You've probably heard of infectious laughter, but nothing like this. In 1962, three young girls from a boarding school in Tanzania began to laugh uncontrollably. They would laugh for hours at a time without being able to stop. The laughter spread to other children and became so widespread that the school was forced to shut down. This, however, did not end the epidemic. Some of the girls spread their laughing sickness when they went home. By May, there were 217 reported cases of the laughing flu in the area. Most of the afflicted were school aged children. When June came and went and the laughter had continued to spread, then it all stopped as suddenly as it began. In five months, the laughing flu caused 14 schools to close, with around 1,000 cases of laughing fits recorded. In 2002, the people of Uttar Pradesh in India reported seeing an alien spacecraft that would burn the flesh on people's face. It was given the name Mukta Chwa, which loosely translates to face-scratcher there were seven deaths associated with the alien. The local police deputy did nothing to calm matters when he made a statement claiming that these afflictions were brought on by some sort of anti-national genetically engineered insect. Villagers stormed police headquarters and demanded protection, inciting a riot and leaving one person dead. People even committed suicide to save themselves from these foreign attackers. In the end, The national government had to step in and send agents to investigate the case. They attributed the whole outbreak to mass hysteria and declared all burn marks and injuries were entirely self-inflicted. Tourette syndrome is characterized as a vocal and or physical tick that is uncontrollable. It is a rare neuropsychiatric disorder, which made it all the more strange when a New York school experienced what seemed to be an outbreak of Tourette syndrome in 2011. After several schoolchildren began to display Tourette-like symptoms, parents became concerned that there was some sort of toxin that was causing the outbreak. Many of those parents still believe this, though researchers, including Aaron Brockovich, concluded that there was nothing unusual about the environment. Dr. Laszlo Mechter came to the conclusion that this outbreak was the result of conversion disorder, another name for mass hysteria. This basically means that though the students were experiencing real symptoms, they had not suddenly come down with Tourette's Syndrome. The Halifax Slasher Panic began on November 16, 1938, in Halifax, England, when two women entered the local police station with head wounds. They told the police that a man had attacked them with a razor blade, but upon investigating, the police could find no evidence at the crime scene. Word of the attack quickly spread. Over the following days, more people came forward, all with cuts and knife wounds. Vigilante groups began to roam the streets, attacking men who appeared suspicious. With the local police stumped by the lack of evidence and with no suspects, detectives from Scotland Yard were called in to help but just as the detectives began their investigation, the case took an unexpected turn. During questioning, many of the victims began confessing they had actually injured themselves after hearing about the so-called Halifax slasher. When nine of the 12 victims confessed to self-harm, the police closed the investigation. Five were subsequently charged with public mischief offenses, and four were sent to prison for their part the slasher panic. A high school in Louisiana experienced a strange moment of mass hysteria in 1939 when one of their students inexplicably began to feel an uncontrollable twitch in her right leg. After attending the school's annual homecoming dance, her leg began to twitch along with the music. This continued in school the next day and soon spread to several of her female classmates Concerned parents began to pull their children out of school. As fear spread, so did the twitching phenomenon until it suddenly and ultimately ended within a week. Sociologists explained that there was no real condition. This was merely a case of mass hysteria. One of the most well-known examples of mass hysteria in American history, the Salem Witch Trials, resulted in around 20 deaths and its enduring legacy. Salem was already rife with rumors of witchcraft when, in 1692, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams began displaying strange tendencies, including screaming and flailing around uncontrollably. Doctors declared the girls were bewitched. Along with Ann Putnam, the young girls began identifying women in town as witches. Their accusations started with societal outcasts, but also targeted supposed pillars of society as more and more accusations were made. By the time the trials ended a year later, over 200 people had been accused of practicing witchcraft, 19 people had hanged, one man had been pressed to death by stones, and seven had died in jail awaiting execution. Although Salem remains a popular tourist attraction for history and witchcraft enthusiasts, it is widely accepted that these accusations and executions were a result of an extreme case of mass hysteria, in part propelled along by religious extremism, isolationism, false accusation, and a total failure of the system. This is the longest red light I think I ever sat at. It's midnight, and I'm ready to get home and get some sleep. I have never been down this way before. It's a dark and secluded road. Strange place for a red light. I can't imagine having much traffic here, even in the daytime. I should just drive through the damn thing. No cops behind me. But wait, am am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Is there somebody there? What is this black figure in my rearview mirror? It's a shadow of some kind, but in the shape of a man. I'm in the middle of nowhere. There can't be someone there. Maybe it's someone that needs help. But why is he standing still and so close to my vehicle? I can't make him out, it's too dark. Only the red glow of my brake lights are illuminating the figure. Maybe he means me harm and he may want my vehicle. Are my doors locked? No, I need to lock them quickly. When is this light going to change? I found the only red light in this backwoods town. Maybe I should yell out the window, let him know that I see him there. Maybe he does need help. I'll wind the window down slightly. The air is cold and misty, and I didn't notice the cemetery across the road a second ago. My car is the only lights glowing on this road, except for this brightly lit moon above. He's still there, not moving, just standing near my back window. I'll put my head out ever so slightly and yell at him. Hey, what do you need, do you need some help? I don't hear or see anything, just the smoke from my exhaust flowing past the yellow lines on the road below, creating a red mist highlighted by my taillights. I need to sit back. Is he still behind me in my rearview mirror? No. Where did he go? I'm starting to panic a bit now. My window's still down. I need to wind it up. I need to get through this light. There he is. But in my driver's side mirror coming around from behind the car approaching my door. I can't hear him walking, but I need to wind up the damn window. The light! It's green! Thank God!" I say aloud as I drive down the road. I don't know these roads that well, but I need to get away from here. I am not stopping anymore. I wonder if he had done something to the back of my car. I glance in my rearview mirror. The figure it's still there. It can't be! I'm driving down this road at 30 miles per hour. Is he hanging on my car? I'll swerve and see if he is figure's not moving. Maybe I'm seeing things. Wait, it is moving. It's moving around to my side again. I can see it now in my side mirror, a black figure, almost like a cloaked figure moving along the side of my car as I'm driving. It's moving faster than me. It's coming closer. I have to speed up. 60 miles per hour. It's still there. How can this be? I can see below it in my mirror. It has no feet. Its black cloak ends just above the road. The yellow lines are racing by below this thing as it approaches. My doors are locked, but my window is still down. I need to close it. This road is dark and becoming very difficult to drive on at this speed. My heart is racing. I need to wind up the damn window. The figure's getting closer to my door. Oh, oh God, I'm not gonna make this turn. Oh my head, it's killing me. What happened? I'm not moving anymore. My head it feels wet. Yeah, it is. Must have hit the steering wheel after I hit this tree. How long have I been out? My door, it's wide open. My whole left side is cold and getting colder from the cool misty night air flowing in from outside. The wooded area I'm in—it's glowing with a red mist from my car tail lights. I can't see anything; just this red mist. Was I dreaming about the dark figure that I couldn't escape? Did I crash and injure my head that, in turn, caused me to have that horrible dream? Or could that thing still be out there, next to my car with my door wide open? Maybe I should. Maybe I should close the door. I need to get my cell phone call for some help. Should I look in my rearview mirror? My cell phone was in the back seat. I hope I can reach it. I raise my head to look into the rearview mirror. It's there. The dark, cloaked figure. It's there in my rearview mirror, but not behind my vehicle. It's in my back seat, leaning toward me it's here to harm me. I'm sure of that now, and now I can see its face. My mother had fallen ill not very long ago. We had to put her in a rehabilitation center to get her back on her feet. I spent my non-working hours sitting at her bedside. I used to be a nursing assistant at a place like this, and I knew how it could be. About a week after my mother was admitted, she got a new roommate. I could hear the nurse talking to the aide, going over the information about the new patient. Betty, they said, was 92 years old. Had dentures, glasses, and dementia. She was admitted for a rest bit. A rest bit is when the normal caretaker for one reason or another needs a break. Next thing I remember them saying is that Betty's home nurse made a note in her chart that Betty bites. I couldn't help but chuckle. I've been gummed before by patients who forgot they didn't have any teeth without their dentures in. By the time they were done, it was getting late. I must have dozed off in the chair beside my mom's bed because I was awoken by a terrifying, bone-chilling scream. I jumped and had to catch my breath. I checked on mom. She was sleeping soundly. I then checked on Betty, who put a pale, wrinkled finger over her lips as her face twisted into a toothless smile. Sometime later, I kissed my mother goodnight and headed home for a few hours of sleep and a much-needed shower. The next morning, I remember clear as it was this morning. I was stopping by to drop some donuts off for my mom and her nurses. I heard a scream again coming from the direction of my mom's room, I ran as fast as a forty-year-old, five-foot-two woman could. I was the first one to the room with a nurse's aide close behind me. As soon as I entered the room, I saw my mother was still in her ambient-induced sleep. Betty's bed, however, was empty. The bathroom door hung about three-quarters of the way open. I turned and stepped into the bathroom. Suddenly I found myself on the ground. I had slipped in slick, sticky blood the trail led to the shower. I pulled myself up and peered behind the curtain. As I did, the nurse's aide came in behind me. We both stood in shock for a moment at the sight of the nurse's limp, blood-soaked body. I was going to puke. Something had torn the flesh from her neck. As I turned, I saw Betty running towards us. I just didn't see her in time. She jumped on the aide and tore into her flesh, pulling it free from her body. Luckily, all the commotion drew a crowd and Betty was subdued. They removed her from the floor in a drug-induced stupor. I had my mother transferred the same day. As I unpacked my mother's belongings, I pulled around a plastic cup out of a box labeled bathroom. On the lid of the cup was written, Betty, and inside were her dentures, still soaking from the night before. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron for as little as $1 per month, and get exclusive patron-only content for as little as $5 per month, including numerous episodes you can't find anywhere else online. Learn more by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Another way to show your support is to share a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other social media and ask your friends and family to subscribe to the podcast as well and leave a rating and review. If you subscribe and leave a review, I'll be sure to give you a shout-out in a future episode. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. The Whistling Ghost of Cock Abbey was written by G. Michael Vasey for MyHauntedLife2.com. The M Triangle and Arcane Anomalous Zone were both posted at MessageToEagle.com. Hairy Monster, Frightening the Guests of the Irish Castle, posted at Earth Chronicles. The Haunted Farmhouse was posted at GhostsInGhouls.com. Eight Strange Cases of Mass Hysteria was posted at the Occult Museum. The Vanished Cadet was written by Troy Taylor. You can find source links for all of these stories in the show notes. I also shared the following original stories of fiction. Betty Bites was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com by Elizabeth Miller. And The Rear View was also submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com by Michael Deeb. Music in this episode is by Midnight Syndicate from the project The Thirteenth Hour. You can download the entire album right now for yourself by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.